So we haven't done a rapture video in kind of a while, and uh, uh, I thought today would be a good day to uh, just kind of jump back into that subject a little bit. It's not completely random that I'm just doing this, by the way. Um, there was a video I received from a friend of mine that kind of reminded me of something that I, I have recognized over the last few years, um, and that is that the idea of the event of the rapture is something that uh, in in among many within Christendom, you likely fall into any number of camps on how you view this idea. One would just be that you're not aware of it. What is the rapture? I remember I had never heard of the rapture until I actually started going to a Bible teaching church. You know, I grew up Catholic and it was just never a subject of discussion uh, growing up in Catholicism. When I got saved, when I was about 21, uh, I was part of a church that talked openly about prophecy, and I heard for the first time this idea of the rapture, and, and there it was in Scripture and this kind of thing. So it was, it's been a, a point of interest to me and study for about 30 years now. And so uh, it's something I, I, I am just a firm believer in, in this event, and so we'll talk a little bit about that today. Uh, another camp you might fall in is not that you're unaware of it, but that you're aware of it, but you just don't believe that it's a real thing. It's not biblical. It's maybe an idea that came along much later. It's not something the early church believed and all that kind of thing. Uh, and so therefore, it's really not something that you know you really care about, even though you've heard of it. It's like, it's probably not a real thing. Uh, or there's a more extreme camp down that road that even mocks the idea, thinks it might even be considered a doctrine of demons and that sort of thing. And so um, you know, those discussions and, and hearing some of those responses to the idea of the rapture, sometimes even on this channel when we talk about it, there's, uh, there's some resistance in, in, uh, in some of those ways. And so, um, so my, my thought was it would be a good idea to kind of come back and visit this specifically. We talk about the rapture. We talk about the ex expectancy of seeing Jesus, uh, the bridegroom snatching away his bride and all of this wonderful uh, truth that we, you know, see exemplified in in um, in the picture of the Jewish wedding and all this kind of thing. It's just this wonderful thing to look forward to. But I haven't taken time to really talk about what it is or some of the evidences for it, biblically speaking. And so I thought it might be a good idea to touch on that today a little bit. Um, one thing this is not really intended to be today is a discussion or debate about when the rapture would happen. Today, we're just going to talk about the event itself as being something that is rooted in Scripture and therefore something that I believe we should uh, live in the expectancy of. But as far as the actual timing of it, uh, I, I'll make very open, I'm a pre-tribulational guy. I believe that the rapture will happen prior to the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, and that's my perspective on it. I've also mentioned before, if it turns out I'm wrong about that, Whoever's got a different perspective on that is welcome to tell me all about it and school me on it while we wait for Jesus to come when he does, if it's not pre-tribulational. And I say that seriously. If it turns out it's not pre-trib, I'm okay with that. It's just, you know, uh, but I do have some pretty strong reasons why I think it is pre-trib. And so, uh, but that being said, this isn't about forcing that idea on anybody per se. It's really uh, not about pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib. It's not really about any of those particular perspectives per se, uh, but rather just to talk about the event itself and the reality of it from a biblical standpoint. So that being said, um, um, you know, it, it is, uh, I think, important for believers uh, who believe in a rapture to certainly have reasons for why they believe the rapture is a legitimate biblical truth. Um, but I do think that while there ought to be some great discussion between perspectives on the when, 
and even some good healthy debate. I think that it's uh, it's a topic that we ought to be able to discuss reasonably in good faith and not have to scream and shout about it. Um, but uh, but I, I I say that because even if I stretch that out a little further. Uh, the doctrine or the belief that the Bible teaches this idea of the rapture is not a salvation issue. In other words, your salvation is not contingent upon your sense of when or even your sense of if. Uh, you know, if you believe there's a rapture or you don't believe in a rapture, that's not going to affect whether or not you go to heaven. Uh, it may turn out to be a great surprise, a wonderful, blessed surprise to find out when you're going to heaven that this thing was a real thing. But if you don't believe it, you're not less of a Christian per se. Um, you're still going to heaven, just like you know any believer would be. But um, but it is, on the other hand, not an unimportant idea. I think there are implications to a perspective on this. I think that if we don't believe that Christ could come prior to the second coming, in other words, there's at least some degree of expectation prior to him coming to establish his kingdom. Um, I think that has an effect. And I think at this point, the when you think the rapture happens has an increasing or decreasing amount of impact on how you live your life today, but more on that a little later. So that being said, it's not a, uh, you're not going to heaven or hell based on your belief in or view on the rapture per se, but it's not an unimportant thing either. So let me just start by talking about what the rapture is. You may have been watching already saying, okay, we've used this word 30 times already, but I don't even know what it is. Well, the rapture, uh, and I'll invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 uh, as a starting point for this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is talking to a church, and I love to point out how this is a church he spent basically about three weeks with. In Acts, we find out that uh, he spent three Sabbaths with them, he planted the church, he established it, and then he was chased out of town. Well, we find out from First and Second Thessalonians that among the things that he founded in this church was a was a pretty solid understanding of eschatology or last things. In other words, this young church of new believers, Paul was not averse to sharing about things like the last days. And so I think it's important for us to consider these things when we um, when we teach in our churches, when we lead someone to Christ. We want to let them know that there's a blessed hope we're looking forward to and all this kind of thing. That's not just for Mature believers down the road, I think it's for all believers. But here in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians 13, um, there is uh, in particular, uh, and let me just go and read the passage because we'll be talking about it a little bit as we go today. In verse 13, Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, or he's referring to those who have died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. Again, those who have died in Christ will return with Jesus uh, when he comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom. We see this um, uh, in other places. Again, we see this in Revelation 19, for example, Christ returning with the armies of heaven, which likely refers to the angelic host, but also in regard to those uh, who return, uh, who, who have died in faith. We see this in Jude as well in other places. But we believe that uh, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, and that's where that word rapture comes from, I'll explain in a second, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So we see a few things here from this. First off, there is this idea that there is an expectation among those who have died in Christ. They're not lost forever. They didn't miss something because they died in Christ. They're going to ultimately be resurrected in their glorified bodies in that moment when Christ comes. And we who are alive during in that moment when it happens, we will join them chronologically in terms of order. They will, although it happens, if we also bring into this 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, really verses 35 through 58. But in there, Paul, similarly speaking of the same event, speaks of the rapidity with which it'll happen, with which it'll happen. Here, Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. We will join them and meet the Lord in the air, uh, rising immediately with them, albeit technically speaking, after them. But all of this happens in breathtaking speed, so fast as to not even really almost be able to count the time in between. But we will meet the Lord and meet him in the air. Now, that word caught up there in verse uh, 17 is a word harpazo. I think actually in the in 1 Thessalonians, harpazo gamatheia is the full uh, term as it's intense and, and position in the passage. But the harpazo is the idea of this snatching away, this violent catching up, this being pulled up rapidly all of a sudden, this kind of thing. Um, the word harpazo when ultimately appearing in the Latin, uh, when it's translated into Latin, is translated as the word rapturo. And that word rapturo is where we get our English word rapture from. So while on the one hand, you don't see the word rapture there in verse 17 in English, it actually, in its etymological, its etymology, its its origin of the term, uh, is rooted right there in verse 17. And so to start with, to speak of the word rapture as being a biblical term, it clearly is. Uh, it's not in English, in our English translations, although I find that to be kind of unfortunate because of the, the usage of the term today. It would have been kind of fun to see it there that way, at least in my translation, my New King James. But, um, but the idea of the rapture is clearly a biblical one. Now, what is it? Again, Paul gives some pretty good description here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he speaks about, again, how the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive are caught up with them to meet the Lord. And very significantly, Paul explains, in the air. Okay? This is not when Christ comes back to earth and the dead rise and are given glorified bodies and that kind of thing. Um, okay, I'm going to not go on a tangent here on a separate thing, but... Instead, there is a clear distinction here in the way Paul describes this. Now, when we do think of the second coming, we're thinking of things like Revelation 19, verses 11 through chapter 20, uh, where there's this description of Christ coming in the clouds and the armies of heaven with him, and he uh, casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire in that. They don't even go to the judgment seat. They are immediately judged and condemned. Uh, but at that point, then, he comes and puts down and destroys the armies of the earth. All of those that are in rebellion with Antichrist at Christ's return are killed, and ultimately the millennial kingdom is established. Satan is bound for a thousand years, and the saints rule and reign in Jerusalem. It is likely, and this is what I was about to say a second ago, it is likely right about that time that when um, uh, that when Jesus establishes his kingdom, somewhere in that frame of time when that's happening, it is likely then that the saints of old, the Old Testament believers, um, uh, are ultimately then uh, given their glorified bodies, and they enter in and rule and reign in the millennial kingdom, we alongside of them. And so, um, so, but the second coming, 
not to get too far on a different topic. But the second coming is clearly all about Christ returning to the earth to establish his kingdom. Again, we pray this, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking for this very event to take place every time we say that. And of course, when we read things like Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation again 19 into chapter 20, um, uh, various other descriptions. About, matter of fact, uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Matter of fact, turn to Zechariah 14. Let's look at an actual passage that speaks to this. Zechariah is uh, one of the last books of the Old Testament, and chapter 14 is the last chapter of Zechariah. So let's look at verse uh, 3 and 4, for example. Uh, as always, I invite you to look at the whole chapter and read it, but We'll go ahead and just read verses 3 and 4. Now, this is Zechariah describing the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is used variously in terms of the entire period of time where he's bringing his wrath on the earth. Um, but, but you know, this period of time is what's in view here when Zechariah says this. And he says here in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. This, again, is Armageddon. This is when Christ returns and puts down the armies of the world. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south, and he goes on. Now, clearly what's in view there is is Christ returning and setting foot on the earth. Uh, matter of fact, the last thing the disciples asked Jesus before his ascension into heaven is, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? Their expectation is Christ establishing an earthly kingdom, the Messiah establishing an earthly kingdom. And in Zechariah, he's talking about that, the dispelling and destroying of the nations. And ultimately then what follows would be the establishing of his kingdom. Later on in Zechariah 14, there's even discussion about those in that day coming to Jerusalem and worshiping once a year. And so, um, so clearly, when we talk about Christ's second coming, we're talking about a visible, physical return to the earth in which his feet touch down, he establishes his kingdom. Again, Daniel chapters 2, chapter 7 gives some great discussion on the ancient of days coming like this rock cut without hands, crushing the kingdoms that have come before that ultimately reach their crescendo uh, in the days leading up to his return. We've spoken about this in some length, and so I'll invite you to go to the... Um, Uh, I'll try and start mentioning this more often because you may not be aware, but uh, on my personal website, parsonspad.com, on the left column, you'll see a a list of categories and headings for various posts that we've done. And uh, when you go under prophecy, you'll see prophecy briefs and you'll see series that we've done and you can kind of look for things on this subject. And then, of course, you can look on our YouTube channel at calvarychapelfranklin.com and you can go to our YouTube channel and you can see some of these posts there under the prophecy heading as well. Um, but so the second coming speaks to the idea of Christ touching down on the earth. Paul describes this catching up in very different terms, and I don't think that's insignificant. And I also don't believe that's spiritualized, intended to be taken as sort of uh, symbolic or metaphorical or spiritualized. I think that Paul is describing the event pretty straightforwardly. And so, therefore, when we read it, we are at a bit of a problem trying to make it fit into something else like the second coming because the second coming is described in clear terms and it would have been just as easy for Paul to use those same kinds of terms but he doesn't and this again is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit now I am of the belief that when we talk about eschatology that we should not 
all of a sudden sort of flip a switch and believe that interpretation is now done differently than it would be in any other part of Scripture. That is a generally held view that when we get to um, like prophecy and eschatology, last things, that we need to recognize that the authors are speaking of this with a different kind of a perspective. And so therefore, we should understand this primarily, or at least most frequently, as being allegorical or symbolic in some way, but really not taken to be literal. In other words, when John describes things in Revelation, uh, we should not ass- we should not assume that this should be taken literally, but rather instead uh, allegorically or symbolically. Um, I would take a different approach to that. I think that fundamentally that is not the way we should look at prophecy and eschatology, but rather instead, where the passage lends itself clearly to symbolism, we don't discount that. We try to figure out what the symbolism means, and oftentimes, uh, matter of fact, most, almost all the time, uh, I would say all, but it may be that there are some examples where this is not the case, uh, that we don't have enough information to clearly explain. I shouldn't say maybe, I know there are some examples where we don't have enough information to say dogmatically this is what something means. But for the most part, many, many, many of the things that are spoken of uh, in seeming symbolic or metaphorical language, do have a clear connection with a clear understanding of what is intended to be seen in this. Uh, the one I point to probably most often is in Revelation 12, where it talks about the woman with the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, there have been all kinds of crazy interpretations of that, and some very, very misleading ones uh, in, in regard to sometimes this is being viewed as the church and that kind of thing. But in Genesis 37, we have this same imagery, and we are told what it means. And so when we see it again at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in a period of time that is specifically focused on Israel, it should not surprise us that we have a clear understanding of who's in view when that woman is seen. Uh, The imagery at the beginning of chapter 13, with the beast and all of these wild descriptions, That's not the first time we saw that. We saw that back in Daniel. And Daniel asks, what does this mean? And he's given an explanation. And so when we come to prophecy, we ought not automatically switch mental gears and say, well, all this is symbolic. I would say where it's clearly symbolic, we recognize it as such with the understanding that there may be a clear understanding of what that means in Scripture. But where the text speaks straightforwardly, where it just spells something out, We ought not assume, because it deals with eschatology, that it is not intended to be taken straightforwardly. I think it should be, and this is one of those places. When we look at the second coming, clear discussion and description of what that looks like. This is different. This idea in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through through 18 is different, and I would argue that in connection, 1 Corinthians um, uh, 15 verse 50 to 58, but in terms of understanding the change that Paul describes with our glorified bodies, that begins even earlier in chapter uh, 15, verse 35. Um, but so that's the that's the thing. When it, uh, when it comes to the idea of the rapture and the second coming, they are clearly described as separate events in the New Testament. Um, so that's what the rapture is. I'd like to take a little bit of time here, uh, just you know, as as we move through this, 
to speak more about this, but sort of in light of some of the critiques of the idea of the rapture. In other words, um, objections to the rapture. How might we deal with those when they're raised? Because objections, it's legitimate to raise objections if you think that maybe something is not being taught right or you don't believe something and you're wondering more. That's completely legit to raise objections, to ask questions, to want to know more, uh, to need to be convinced and that kind of thing. Hopefully at this point already we've convinced uh, at least to some degree, of the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Um, but uh, but I do think that uh, um, um, when questions continue to arise from there, we should also take time to address them, so I'm going to try and do that here. Let me say this before we go on, though. Um, the, the idea of the rapture is not intended to be a doctrine that divides. It's not intended to be an idea that brings division between believers, but it's intended to be seen as a means of encouragement. As a matter of fact, you'll notice again in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, what does Paul say there as he continues through into describing more about the day of the Lord? He says this in verse 18, therefore, in other words, because of everything I just said and described to you, again, the idea that you as believers will be, and Paul including himself in that, will be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air one day, in the midst of all the suffering and trials and persecutions and even tribulation in the sense that Jesus spoke about in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but be a good cheer, I've overcome the world. Uh, the idea of general agitation and unsettledness, uh, feeling unsettled in, in the midst of your circumstances, this is, the, uh, this is the expectation of the believer in this world. But our hope is in the knowledge that he has overcome it. One of the uh, expressions of that having overcome it is the fact that we will be snatched out of it. Um, so Paul says in the midst of this, encourage one another with these words. He says the same thing in verse nine of chapter five. Notice he says here, as he goes on to speak about the day of the Lord and how this should not, we should not feel as though this is going to come upon us like a thief in the night and all this kind of thing. In verse uh, nine, he says, um, or I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, therefore comfort each other and edify or build one another up just as you also are doing. In other words, continue to encourage each other in the midst of these circumstances. And it comes on the heels of everything he's describing about the rapture and also of the uh, the day of the Lord in general. Um, so um, let me go ahead now and speak to, uh, and by the way, he also encourages in, in 1 Corinthians 15 the same way. We'll talk more about that. Maybe we'll even close with that passage in verse 58. But let me again speak to some of the objections that are often raised in regard to the idea of the rapture. And one of the most prominent is the idea that Jesus himself never spoke about the rapture of the church. Uh, if, it was, if this was such a big deal, why wouldn't Jesus have spoken to it? Well, there are differing views on whether or not he has spoken to it or not. Uh, Matthew 25, there are parables he told, sometimes they're seen as being in connection with that. I would say, um, uh, and this may sound strange to some of you, but I am pretty much in agreement with that idea, that Jesus didn't speak of the rapture. Um, but there's a particular reason as to why he didn't speak of the rapture. And that's because he came first to the children of Israel. He did ultimately reach out to some Gentiles during his ministry. But by and large, even as John said in John chapter 1, he came first to his own. Uh, and Jesus himself said, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? And so this was his ministry and mission in his first coming. Uh, the idea of the church, the body of Christ, uh, is a mystery, Paul says, until ultimately he comes on the scene and describes it in uh, places like Ephesians and Galatians and such. Um, the idea of the church is a, a, a secret that was not revealed until after the time of Christ's ministry. Are there hints uh, to it? Yes, 
Yes, there are in Jesus' ministry, but it's never clearly described as being what it is. The church, the body of Christ, is this bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body. Jesus speaks of uh, his called out assembly and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That word ekklesia is used there in the Greek, speaking of the church, the word church or called out assembly. We use the term church um, with much greater understanding after you know the resurrection of Christ when ultimately we now begin to see this bringing together of Jew and Gentile. But in Jesus' ministry, that was not an idea that was fully developed. In the minds of a Jew at the time of Christ's, think, uh, of Christ's ministry, their thinking would have been, well, if a Gentile wants to come into the covenant people of God, into the household of God, he would be a proselyte, which means he would be circumcised, he would begin to honor the covenant, the law and everything, uh, and he would become a an honorary Jew, essentially. He would still be ethnically Gentile, but he would, for all practical intents and purposes, now be in the commonwealth of Israel. But that's different than what the idea of the church is. No longer is there coming through Moses and all this kind of thing. And so when Jesus spoke of, like, you, do, you shall not know the day or the hour uh, in, in Matthew 24, uh, beginning in verse 32 in that, I don't actually see that as referring to the rapture. Uh, in Matthew 24, he is dealing specifically with the last days as pertains to Israel. And he uses terminology that they would understand and that I think give indication to who he's talking to as an audience. Now, it may sound a bit extreme to limit it to that particular audience, but I don't really think it is because, again, the church would not have been in view at that point. Uh, it was not even born yet. And so I think it's fair to say that when Jesus answers the question, he is answering it from a Jewish perspective to Jewish people about the Jewish place in eschatology. Now, of course, this does open up into a different, uh, to a, I shouldn't say different, it's actually a related discussion, but it is a larger discussion. And that is has to do with the idea of the place of Israel and the church as being separate entities, promises and such, uh, separated, you know, ultimately directed specifically toward particular groups uh, and that kind of thing. And then, of course, you've got the Gentiles on the outside, the unbelievers and such. And then you've got saints who come to Christ in, in during the tribulation period and that. So this is a larger discussion, which, again, we've discussed in previous posts. I won't do that here just for time's sake, but you can go back and look some of that up um, uh, in our previous posts. And so, um, so, in Matthew 24, and I would even argue 25, because it, it appears to be one continuous discourse by the Lord. And so uh, my view, I tend to stand on the side of, of that, uh, of, of which Jesus was not referring to the church in that passage. Um, and so now again, there, there, there are some arguments to be made that the church may have been in view in some of that, but um, I, I'm not really sure I'm on that side of that. And I don't think it like that those passages are required to make this case uh, for the rapture of the church and all this kind of thing. But that being said, does that mean that the rapture is not a thing just because Jesus didn't talk about it? No, not necessarily. I mean, again, if we understand and, and uh, you know, that, that at particular times, God was dealing in particular folk with particular focus it's not really a hard sell to say, well, the rapture is an idea 
that comes to full expression and explanation later on after the ministry of Christ. Again, if the rapture of the church is what's in view, the fact that it would fall within the confines of the mystery that was the church now made known through the ministry of Paul and explained, you know, and throughout the New Testament, then after the Gospels and the once we're later in the uh, once once we're in the book of Acts and that. Now we begin to understand more about this entity, the church, and what pertains to it. Again, Israel has a different role in last days things in eschatology, uh, by and large. And I guess I don't want to completely ignore this this element in this discussion. But um, in uh, in the last days, Israel is in unbelief, and so when the rapture happens. Israel's not part of that because they've not embraced Messiah, nationally speaking. There are many Jews who have, many Messianic Jews, those who believe that Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of their Messianic promises, and they've put their trust in him and are now born again, as Jesus himself said was required, that we be born again. And so uh, there are Jews who will be raptured up because they are part of the church. They are part of this body, this entity of Jew and Gentile brought together. Again, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, you want to read about this. However, nationally, ethnically, the nation of Israel will continue on into the last days under Antichrist, uh, and they will believe that he is their Messiah. They'll sign a peace covenant with him. Uh, It very probably will have something to do with them being able to rebuild their temple. We know the temple will be built because three and a half years into this covenant, the, the Antichrist will go into the temple and desecrate it. We see this in Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, Daniel um, chapter 9, verse 27. We see these uh, this event take place. And at that point, Israel will flee into the wilderness. Again, Revelation 12, the woman is chased off into the wilderness. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, Christ at the end of the following three and a half year uh, period, when he returns in Revelation 19, Israel will look upon him whom they've pierced, again, Zechariah, and they will believe in him ultimately. They'll come to faith. Uh, at least one-third of them will. We, uh, If we understand Zechariah 13, um, uh, verse 8 correctly, then what may be in view there is the fact that under Antichrist, two-thirds of the nation of Israel perish, and one-third ultimately ends up surviving to the time when they see Christ return and they enter into the millennial kingdom in fulfillment of the promises. And so um, so Israel has a different place in eschatology. Um, it is once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in that God once again turns his attention and focus on, on working through Israel, which is why chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, or up to uh, verse 19-11 of the book of Revelation, have such an exceptionally Jewish focus to them, because that's who's in view during that period of time, the 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel, the two witnesses, all these different things. And so, again, there's more to that, and that's a bigger study, but uh, there's some element of that that fits into here. Now, I would also say, in regard to the idea of the rapture, um, even prior to Paul, Jesus did not speak to it specifically, but that doesn't mean there are types in Scripture. Um, two prominent ones that appear in Scripture, um, I think, uh, are back in the time of uh, Noah, when the flood came. When you read about the flood account, you realize that the genealogy leading up to Noah and the events that take place in the flood, we realize that you could essentially categorize three groups of people, quote-unquote, during that period of time. There are those who uh, perished in the flood— which would be typological of the unbelieving world outside, 
There are those who are preserved through the flood. That would be typological of Israel in the tribulation period being preserved by God. Again, if Zechariah 13 gives us an indication, one third of Israel ultimately makes it through and is preserved by God through that tribulation period. And then you also have somebody who is raptured out or snatched away prior to the flood. Enoch, seventh from Adam, it says in Genesis, walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. And so Enoch becomes typological of the church, being raptured prior to the tribulation period, during which time Israel is preserved through it, ultimately, uh, to the end. And so Again, all metaphors at some point break down, and so we're not making this gigantic case out of this. And I would also say that that example is not a guaranteed symbol of these things we're talking about because it it isn't put out there and it says this is typological of this. It doesn't say that. But we are seeing metaphorically this picture being painted in that. Another example of this would be uh, Daniel, when he and his three friends are in Babylon, And uh, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, has given both the vision and the interpretation, or the dream and the interpretation of the dream uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, previously. And in that uh, episode, Daniel explains that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the first in a series of kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar's dream symbolized, this head and shoulder, this head of, uh, of gold. And so, the first kingdom representing Nebuchadnezzar's is symbolized by gold. Now, of course, that whole story is worth spending time on, but it's significant in our terms of our metaphor we're talking about. In chapter 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree to have an image built of him that I think, if I understand the math correct, is like roughly 100 feet tall or 90 feet tall or something, but it's it's a very tall image, and it's entirely of gold. Now, this there's... Typology here in terms of a number of things, not the least of which would be the image that the Antichrist and the false prophet, false prophet has established in, in terms of uh, bringing the world to worship the Antichrist, an image, an abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place at, at that time. But in Nebuchadnezzar's time, he builds this image of gold as if to say, My kingdom will never end. My kingdom will encompass all other kingdoms. No kingdom will. will conquer mine. Even though God in heaven has said what's going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up and says, no, that's not how it's going to be. And he demands that everybody worship this image at a certain time of day. Well, Daniel's three friends get word of this this order to worship, and they refuse to do it. And so word comes that Daniel's three friends will not worship, and so they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he says, why won't you bow down? And they said, well, we're going to worship the God of heaven, even if you know, no matter what happens, we're going to stand firm. I'm just being massively, uh, you know, um, truncating the story. But so Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into a fiery furnace and uh, the heat is turned up seven times because they're walking around in there. Nothing's happening. It's, it's set up so high that the guards around the furnace are die and perish from the heat of it. But they look inside, and in the midst of it, they see uh, these three standing there, and there's a fourth, like a son of the gods. Uh, And it would appear that Christ himself is standing with them in a pre-incarnate appearance, where the Lord himself is standing with them in the midst of their tribulation, their fiery trial. And uh, ultimately, at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that, that these are servants of the God of heaven, and he 
you know, he calls them to come out and, and all this kind of a thing. And so they, they are brought through this tribulation period at the hands of uh, a type of the Antichrist who demands to be worshipped by this image that is created of him and this kind of thing. Again, typo, typology that we see uh, later expressed in Revelation 13. There's one key element here in the story back in Daniel chapter 3, and that is where's Daniel? You know, Daniel is not in the story there. And it is highly unlikely that Daniel bowed down and worshipped this image. And it's very likely that, you know, from a practical standpoint, he's probably just away for some reason. Again, he's he's a high-ranking person in Nebuchadnezzar's court now because of his ability to translate or to interpret the dreams and such. And so it may very well be that as an official of state, he may just be somewhere else at this time. But he's noticeably absent from the story. And so, again... It's a metaphor, it's a type, and so we can't pull it too far, but it does seem apparent that in this story we have, again, three groups of people, and even a fourth character that fits this end times scenario. You've got these three typologically representing Israel who are thrown into a time of great trial, fiery trial, at the hands of a despot leader who demands to be worshipped. Now, interestingly, I should interject at this point, Paul in in 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about something very similar about this one who goes into the temple of God, declares himself to be God, demands to be worshipped above all that is called God. Um, And then you also have uh, these who are destroyed, uh, uh, the, the guards who are destroyed during that time of tribulation. But then you also have this one that is not there. He's away prior to the tribulation. Again, typologically representing the church. It is a type, it's a metaphor, but I think there's significant implicit examples of these things. They're not explicit, but they are implicit types of this idea. So again, the first objection that I'll just mention here is Jesus never spoke about it. Does that mean that there's no hints of it or anything anywhere else? No, of course not. There are. And the fact that Jesus didn't speak about it in itself is not an evidence that it is unimportant. There's a number of things that Jesus did not speak explicitly to that are covered in the rest of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, The second objection that I'll cover is this. This idea is more of a recent idea and was not believed by early believers. Well, um, I would argue that, that the earliest believers did believe it because we just read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, even in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there is mention of how there is this restrainer who is keeping the, uh, the man of sin, the son of perdition, from being revealed. And once that restrainer is out of the way, then the man of sin is revealed. Uh, was it verse 8, I think? And so, well, let me turn to it. That's uh, Second uh, Thessalonians 2. Uh, it is interesting to me. Sometimes people point to Second Thessalonians 2 and talk about how it doesn't speak about um, the idea of uh, the rapture prior to the Antichrist, but I think it clearly does. I think there it is. Yeah, it's uh, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. As a pre-tribulational believer, my my understanding of that is that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit active in the church. The Holy Spirit himself will never not be in the world because he's God. And so God is everywhere. There's nowhere God isn't. Uh, and so to say that the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world is a misunderstanding. God is never not everywhere at the same time. He is omnipresent, both in terms of Father, Eternal Word, and uh, and uh, and Holy Spirit. So when we say that he's taken out of the way, 
We can't understand that to mean the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. But what can it mean? Well, I think it likely would speak of the idea of the Holy Spirit's activity in the church. If the church is gone, then that particular entity and its influence in the world around is now removed. And I think that's what's in view in chapter uh, 2, verse 7. And then once he's taken out of the way, verse 8 goes on to say, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And so in there, you have in that one verse, this idea of the church being raptured away, the Antichrist coming on the scene, and he ultimately being destroyed by Christ at his second coming. So uh, I do think, and by the way, there's um, there uh, there are those references uh, to an idea of the rapture and, and even the imminency of the rapture um, uh, among some of the early church fathers. We do see it in Irenaeus, we see it in Shepherd of Hermes and some of the early writings we see. Um, references to this idea uh, in that. So not just premillennialism, but even in some cases, pre-tribulationism. And so, uh, uh, so uh, again, it, it is present in the early church, but I would even argue further back than that. I would say that Paul himself is teaching that. You don't get earlier than that. So uh, unless you typologically look at some of these Old Testament examples. And then lastly, the one I'll cover here is 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 probably the most common. This is the biggest uh, um objection to the idea of the rapture, and that is that it is a form of Christian escapism. And it generally goes something like this, and you may have said this yourself. Well, why should the church today, if our brothers and sisters in Christ have been uh, suffering in the world and have gone through such difficulties and hardships, if uh, if they've been persecuted and, and they've had to deal with, after all, Jesus said we'd expect tribulation in this world, if, if believers throughout history have had to deal with this, why should we feel like we get to escape it? It just doesn't seem fair. And that generally, some variation of that is, is generally how this is expressed. And I would say, on the one hand, uh, if any Christian thinks that they should not uh, expect to experience difficulty and tribulation in the general sense of things, that would be wrong. Clearly, that sentiment that Christians have always experienced tribulation, difficulty, hardship, persecution, why should we feel like we should escape it? We shouldn't. We should in no way feel that we should escape tribulation and difficulty and hardship and persecution. Those things are part and parcel. Paul himself said, those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus himself said, if the world hated me, you know they're going to hate you, but remember they hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. You know, the idea is no believer should expect to escape difficulty and even tribulation as Jesus spoke about it again in John 16. The idea that in this world, you will have tribulation. Is that what we're talking about? No, no. And this touches on the why of the rapture. Um, We discussed what the rapture is and we spoke about where it appears in scripture and where it's spoken of, but why? Why snatch away the church and not just let them go through till the end? Well, there's a very important reason for this. This is not just, um, it's not just like, I don't feel like I should have to go through that because after all, I'm your child. Um, God, why would I have to endure that? That would fall into the category of what we just talked about. No Christian has any right to say that. Well, why am I suffering? I'm a child of God. Every child of God should expect there to be tribulation, suffering, persecution in their lives. That's just, it just goes with the territory. We actually signed up for that when we said we'd, we'd you know, um, um, follow Jesus. We would not put our hand to the plow and keep looking back. No, we're, we, we didn't go into this thing not counting the cost, right? Hopefully you didn't. 
Um, anyone who told you that your life would get easier when you became a Christian did not tell you the whole story. No, Christians will go through persecution, tribulation, hard times, and difficulty. When we talk about the time of Antichrist, when we talk about the last seven-year period, when we talk about the tribulation, um, the period of time of Jacob's trouble, the period of time when um, that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, uh, that Paul was referring to in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the book of Revelation is talking about, I would argue, from chapter 6 through the return of Christ in chapter 19, verse 11. This period of time is not just difficulty and persecution. This is a time of God's wrath. That is a fundamental difference. That is not a trivial difference. It is not a semantical difference. This is a fundamental difference, a changing of scenario entirely. When the seals begin to be broken, this this is one of those areas where debates about the timing of the rapture uh, come into play. But my contention would be that the tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel begins in Revelation chapter 6 with the breaking of the first seal. This constitutes the beginning of the wrath of God. Uh, later on, when a later seal is broken and the mention of the wrath of God has come, that term speaks of the idea that it has already come. We're in it now. Well, I would argue that that's making reference to the very beginning when the first seal is broken and Antichrist comes onto the scene, the rider on the white horse with a bow in his hand, no arrows, uh, that description that is given, coming to conquer. Uh, And so, if in fact... That begins God's wrath. And let's even say for the sake of argument that if you take a different view of the rapture, where it's, maybe it is later, maybe it's a pre-wrath position where there's really just a very short time left before the second coming. You're past the midway point of the tribulation period. The Antichrist is on the scene. He's violated the covenant. And you are now past that point. And suppose you're holding what is known as the pre-wrath view. And now you're in this particular place. Even still, if you believe that the wrath technically does not begin till then, the rapture must at least come by then, because once it is wrath, we can't be here for that. Matter of fact, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when, and, and not just chapter 5, but also in chapter 1. Let me read both passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, uh, and and, uh, and speaking of the believers there, uh, uh, turning from idols, serving the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Similarly, in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, or verse 10, uh, he says, or verse 9, he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And again, this comes on the heels of the whole discussion of the rapture in that. And so the idea that we are not appointed to wrath is a very important element to bring into this discussion. Clearly, the wrath of God has come in that period of time in Daniel's 70th week. Again, we can debate whether it's at the beginning or it's whether it's just, you know, a couple of years prior. Wrath has come at that point. We're not appointed to that. When God is judging the earth, we can't be here for that. Why? Because Jesus died to take our wrath. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ, today, during this period of time called the church age, you are not appointed to go through that time. Now, for those who get saved after the rapture of the church and during that period of time when Antichrist is on the scene and who 
remain free of taking the mark. They resist and reject the mark of the beast that is given as does demanded to be taken during that time. If you're able to uh, make it through that period of time and you have to live in that time when God is bringing his wrath down on the earth, that is just a chronological reality. You did not come to faith at the time when Jesus was snatching his bride away, but rather instead you resisted until you found yourself in a place where now it's it's inescapable. Clearly he is the son of God. Clearly I was mistaken. I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. And ultimately you now have to simply endure this until Jesus returns in chapter 19. You will not be among the armies resisting him when uh, he returns. And so therefore you will not be killed. You will enter into the millennial kingdom at that time, having made it through the tribulation period. These are those that we call tribulation saints. Uh, it's a term we use for this. And so, but anyway, the reason we, the reason for the rapture is because the bride of Christ can't be here for that because Christ paid for us. He took our wrath upon himself. That judgment, which we deserved was taken. And so therefore, the rapture is not just a theoretical idea, it is a necessary reality. And so the rapture of the church is not just something that we debate and discuss as sort of a heady, you know, erudite theological argument. Instead, it has real implications in regard to the gospel itself. Um, the fact that the bride of Christ now is his, is his bride means he will not let her go through that which is destined for those who have rejected him, those who are not part of the bride of Christ. Again, the saints uh, notwithstanding who get saved during that period of time. So, um, so there you go. I mean, I just, I just want to cover a few objections as well there as we made our way through this. Not that there aren't others and stuff too. You may raise another one in the comments section. We may address that in a, in a future podcast. But again, it just has been a while since we've talked about the subject. And so I thought I would go ahead and address it today because in fact, the rapture is intended to be, as Paul said twice in that period of time, a tremendous, and if we, as a matter of fact, let's, let's, let's open to 1 Thessalonians 15. I mentioned before we might close with that passage. Let's go ahead and do that. The rapture is intended to be an encouragement, and it is intended to inspire us to live for Christ until he comes. And I would argue, again, with the perspective that Christ could literally come at any second, even right now, right now could happen. Uh, again, I am a I am an imminence guy. I think that it could be at any second. I don't I don't hold the other uh, uh, rapture views where he comes later. I believe there's nothing withstanding for him to be able to come right now, uh, keeping him from coming right now. But let me go ahead and read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 as we bring this to a close. This, again, is one of the great encouragements of, of living in the hope of Christ coming to take us home. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that is how Paul closes the discussion on glorified bodies, the change that will happen to us as believers, the idea that in the twinkling of an eye will be changed. Uh, again, in connection with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we get a fuller picture of what this event, known as the harpazo, the rapturo, the rapture, the snatching away, the being caught up, is all about. Be encouraged by it. Be looking for his coming. Be living every moment as if this was the moment. Now, of course, even if the rapture isn't coming for some time, every one of us is going to one day take our last breath, you know, rapture notwithstanding. Um, so you're always on the cusp of seeing him right now. So we should be living this way anyway. But certainly if we're expecting his coming to snatch his bride away, I alluded earlier to the Jewish wedding, 
um, the Jewish bride knew that she was going to see her bridegroom one day, and he was away building the place that they were going to live on the father's house. And it was the father's job to look at that house. And when it was ready, when the father deemed it was time, he would tell the son, it's time, go get her. But the bride and the groom himself, and of course, that we follow this again, typologically through here, there was a period of time in Jesus' incarnation where he was growing in wisdom and stature, again, fully God, but having taken fully on humanity. It's this mystery of the incarnation. It's uh, this this glorious mystery that we don't fully understand. But Jesus could say at one time that there were things he didn't necessarily know and and, and didn't reveal. Um, but in 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 terms of a someone like you and I, just a regular person, the bridegroom would not know when it was time until the father told him, and therefore the bride didn't know until the father sent the son to go get her, and so she would be preparing herself and waiting every day, looking expectantly over the horizon to 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 hear him coming with the trumpet fanfare and to f- see him with his entourage coming and all this kind of thing. And there would be this great expectation of the day of celebration when the bridegroom would come for the bride. That is what the rapture is about. That is the idea that is that is put there. When Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, that's the kind of picture that's in view. Um, when we live in the expectancy of the imminent coming of Christ for his bride, that's the picture. And so uh, we should be excited about this. And we should be like a bride in Jewish times. Uh, in Jewish culture, we would be getting ready and being about those things that mattered because our bridegroom is coming for us. Uh, Far from giving us a lackadaisical attitude that if Jesus is coming today, then what's the point of doing anything? That's not the way a bride is in regard to waiting for her bridegroom. She wants to be ready. And she wants to know that when he shows up and sees her, that he's going to be well-pleased. That's the, that's the imagery. And so that's why I think it's, it's not just a good theological discussion to have once in a while. I think it's a really important and encouraging thing to talk about uh, frequently. And so, so there you go. And it's not just mentioning the rapture in sort of a passing thought, but I hope, to, I hope that in some way spending a little bit more time on it today uh, is something that whets your appetite to see Jesus. I, I do hope that it has its desired effect and hits the mark in that regard, that you would be excited and looking excitedly for your Savior. This is not some crazy, goofy idea that arrived later in time. It's not something to be mocked, frankly. It is something to be embraced and looked forward to. Uh, it's not escapism. Although I would say, like, what kind of a nut wants to be around for that kind of stuff? You know, I, I, I just, yeah, bring it, man. Chop my head off, you know. Uh, I mean, I believe that the Lord will give us what we need if we're ever in times of deep persecution like that. I'm not mocking those who uh, face fearlessly. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if you're like a glutton for punishment because somehow you think it makes you worthy of something, then you've got a misguided idea. None of us are worthy of anything except judgment. So the fact that the rapture is coming for the bride to come get his bridegroom, that's beautiful. That is grace in action. That is something that we should look forward to. Again, Tribulation, persecution, difficulties, hardships, these things come with the territory, and they always have and they always will until he comes for us. So let's look for that day with expectancy. Father, we thank you. We love you and praise you. How good you are to dress us up as the bride, ready to be received by a bridegroom. That, Lord, you have called us out of this world, and one day your son will come and snatch his bride away, and we will find ourselves uh, literally raptured away in the presence of 
of the Father. Thank you, Lord, for all the hope and expectation that that brings to us. We pray that, Father, we would not have an escapist mindset where we feel like we we shouldn't have to face difficulties and trials and tribulations and such. But, Father, help us to not confuse that with what wrath is all about. And help us to remember that we are only escaping that wrath because of the grace of God shown in Christ Jesus and his death, burial, resurrection, and our invitation now to come and believe and be saved by your grace. So thank you, Father. We thank you for this beautiful truth that one day will be snatched away. And whenever that time is, whether it's five seconds from right now or whether it's uh, after a certain number of seals have been broken and certain things have happened, whenever it is that you have deemed is the time, help us to be living full on for Jesus, knowing that when the time is right, it will happen and we will find ourselves in your presence. Give us all that we need, the wherewithal, the courage, the the grace, the tenacity, uh, the patient endurance, uh, Father, all that we need to continue on and press on until the day that Jesus comes for us. So we love you and thank you, Lord. We praise you and bless you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, if you have any thoughts, questions, or anything like that, you can share them in the comments section below. Uh, we have listed in the notes section for every post uh, a list of places where we post these podcasts. You can also listen to the audio version if you go to my website at parsonspad.com and you click on the link and you can choose the uh, the podcasting outlet that you like to use, iTunes and otherwise. Um, you can also um, email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And, uh, and chances are, if you're asking a question, we'll at some point address it because it's uh, it's probably something others are wondering about as well. So love to take time once in a while as we cover the various things that we do to once in a while cover a topic like this and answer questions and all those kinds of things. So thanks for watching and listening and God bless you, watch over you and keep you until we meet again in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs>